Welcome to Season 2 of EdTech Insiders, where we talk to the most interesting thought leaders, founders, entrepreneurs, educators, and investors driving the future of education technology. I'm your host, Alex Sarlin, an EdTech veteran with over 10 years of experience at top EdTech companies. Welcome to This Week in EdTech from EdTech Insiders, the week of November 9th, 2022. We have guest host Matt Tower with us today from EdTech Thoughts. Welcome, Matt, to the pod. What's on your mind in EdTech this week? Hey, Alex. Thanks for inviting me. This isn't EdTech related, but I do want to report that I just ate six Reese's peanut butter cups. We're finishing off the last of our Halloween candy. They were miniature size, but that just made me want to eat more. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> there you go. There are interesting studies about if you give students an M&M after they finished every math problem, they'll do more math problems. I don't know if you've ever seen that kind of study, but it's a, about the easiest way to motivate students. So maybe you're onto something with your Reese's. Whatever it takes to keep the energy high. <laughs> exactly. That, that's <laughs> exactly. So let's kick off this week with a brief discussion of the U.S. election. So people who followers of the podcast know that we've been talking for the last few weeks about these upcoming midterm elections in the U.S. and how they're going to affect education and ed tech. Unfortunately, as of the recording of the podcast, we don't have final results on which political party is going to control either the House of Representatives or the Senate in the U.S., which means it's a little bit of a anticlimactic, but I think we can pretty much, you know, know that we're going to have at least one run by the Republican Party, which is the opposite party of Joe Biden, meaning that we're going to have divided government and that might affect education funding or sort of bring things a little bit to a slowdown. What do you make of the not quite finished midterm election results, Matt? Yeah, I mean, I think the core takeaway is we probably won't see a ton of new federal policy around education just because of the divided government. You know, that the Higher Education Act continues to just kind of, I think the Chronicle said it was languishing. I can't think of a better descriptor of it. It's been out of date since 2013. And yeah, I just don't see anything new and novel coming down to the pike. So we'll we'll have to work with what we got. Yeah, the forgiveness of student loans that Joe Biden put through just a, a couple of months ago seems to have had very little effect on these elections in either way. It's being held up now in court from a suit from, I think, five governors, I believe. But it, I don't think it was a major issue for very many voters. So we'll have to see how that pans out as well as a political issue. But we're still a little bit on the fence seeing where things land. I think that the local elections are also happened, all the school board elections all over the country. I know that in Florida, there's a pretty hard rightward shift for school boards. And we're happy to report that our regular host, Ben Cornell, won his school board election in San Mateo County. Amazing. So that's fantastic for him. But we'll still have to keep an eye on how things shake out and whether schools continue to be sort of a at the forefront of the culture wars and whether school boards continue to get, you know, pilloried for quote unquote indoctrination. But in any case, the election was a little less dramatic and maybe that's actually a good thing, a little less dramatic of a change than I think many expected in the US. Yeah, I think you're spot on. We'll see what the next two years bring and 2024 will be just as, if not more interesting. Yeah, we will keep our eyes on Florida as well. Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, got reelected quite handily. He's 
being considered as a front runner for the presidential election coming up. And and Florida has a long history of positive, you know, education policy in ed tech, but it's a very divided and, you know, intense place for, for school boards and for schooling. So let's move on. We will obviously revisit this as the results fully come in. One thing that caught my eye this week, Matt, and I know you know a lot about this, is Andreessen Horowitz, which is a very big marquee venture capital fund in SF, announced that they really are continuing to invest in ed tech. We, we had uh, Joe Connor of Odyssey on the podcast last week, and he got our funding round from their American dynamism practice. They've also invested in Prisms, VR, Wonder School, and Maven. And there was a nice overview from one of the partners about why they're investing in ed tech. So Matt, what is your take on injuries and Horowitz entering the space sort of publicly? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very exciting whenever, you know, a, a name brand wants to get more involved in ed tech. I think it's also validating of a lot of the work that the philanthropists and investors have put in over the past 10 years to really make it a market. There were firms that dabbled in ed tech. They'd make, you know, a couple of investments here, a couple of investments there, but you rarely saw an actual thesis built around ed tech. And Catherine at A16Z really seems to be cultivating that as one of her core verticals for investing. So for me, it's exciting. It's more money coming into the environment, which I think we need. And you know, I think the American dynamism portfolio is really kind of neat in and of itself. It's not specific to EdTech, although it's inclusive of EdTech, and built around redefining and rebuilding the infrastructure of how America operates, which it's a really grand, bold statement, but we often associate it with streets and highways, which I don't know if you've seen it, but I've got a lot of brand new streets, repaved streets in my neighborhood here in Philly. And I'd love to see that transferred to the schools too. So I think having Andreessen, you know, beating the drum for getting dollars allocated to tech is, is nothing but a good thing. I agree. I mean, I think it, it invites a longer conversation about, you know, the role of, of government versus private capital in sort of in developing an, an ecosystem for education. But I think all things being equal, we're at a time with a very divided Congress and lots of, it's hard for state funding to sort of find problems that are so specific the way the venture capital does and take lots of pitches and basically say, here are the leverage points that we can really use to make a difference in education. So I think the combination of government and private funding can be really interesting. I mean, what struck me is the sort of concept of the American dynamism practice. And they, you know, there's a quote from this article about basically saying that, you know, the massive overnight shift to remote work and schooling across the country for millions of parents opened up a new interest in alternative ways to educate their children, which creates opportunities for companies in the private sector to meet their needs. And as we know from Odyssey, that's all about sort of alternative educational routes, but it also speaks to their sort of broader perspective of, wow, this huge pandemic just happened. It changed our social norms a lot. And instead of just assuming they're going to snap back, there's this opportunity space where parents are saying, hey, maybe there is something other than traditional school. We've talked to, you know, Kaipod on this podcast, lots of different people looking at different ways to do that. And they're saying, let's give parents that option rather than sort of letting it regress to the mean. I think that's a powerful thesis. You know, everybody I've talked to, very few people want things to sort of go back to exactly where they were. Yeah. I mean, what I always come back to with Pandemic learnings is, I think, the core 
assumption that school and particularly K-12 schooling was about educating students. And the reality is it's educating and providing childcare. And, you know, I think that the pandemic really showed a lot of parents very directly. And I think that's the way to learn a lesson is have it directly happen to you. That exact problem, or um, whether it's a problem or not, I guess we could wait. But, you know, now we're going to have folks who who push to, you know, quote unquote, unbundle, and then we'll rebundle, and then we'll, you know, tree bundle and <laughs> all the bundles, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm excited to see some more novel approaches emerge. Yeah, it begs a lot of interesting questions. Last thought for me on this, it makes me think about how in the early days of of the American continent, at least, you know, fire departments were private companies, and they would compete with each other. And they'd want to be the fastest one there. And there were even like, fistfights between different fire departments for who was going to take over and put out the fire because they were the ones who were going to get paid. And, you know, obviously, that's not how it works anymore. They became completely public, common good, you know, municipal function. And, you know, you think of education as something that, you know, arguably is is moving a little bit the other direction where it's, we've all taken for granted for so long that at least public education is common good. It's out there. Everybody has access to it. That's a wonderful thing in the US and amazing people working in it. But it also sort of removes that urgency and that competition and that sort of feeling of dynamism and, hey, you know, how do we outsmart the competitor and and really do the best job? And I wonder if introducing a little bit of that, that tension back into the system might create some really innovative, you know, ideas that people haven't tried before. I love the out school model of bringing, you know, great teachers from anywhere into any school. And there's just a lot there. Totally. Some crazy stuff has been happening in the big tech world this week. What has your been, especially around layoffs from big tech companies and major stock decreases? I'm curious how you've been seeing, you know, what has stood out to you and what do you feel like it means for EdTech? Yeah, it's difficult to pick <laughs> what to talk about here. You know, I, I think just to provide a broad strokes overview, Twitter has certainly been in the headlines. They fired half their staff, which, you know, the results have been chaotic to say the least, including asking many of their fired staff to come back. Meta, the artist formerly known as Facebook, fired 11,000 people, which was somehow only 10% of their workforce, which is kind of crazy. Stripe, which is one of the big payment processors that's a well-known kind of valley darling because of how well managed they are supposed to be. Did a, I think, 7,000 person layoff, Lyft laid off six or 700 people. It's it's really kind of across the board and it's inclusive of ed tech. You know, I think we saw a bunch of ed tech layoffs over the summer and, and coming into this fall just last week. I think you guys talked about the Baiju's layoffs. Mm-hmm. But there have been more since we left about them. It's everywhere. So, you know, I think like it's really hard to talk about layoffs in general. It's just not a fun subject. The like glass half full side of me says, well, there's a lot of talented people who are now looking for their next adventure. And, you know, I hope some of them will come towards EdTech. We're going to have to do some work to kind of lure them in our direction. But yeah, I think it definitely kind of ends the year on a pretty sour note. And I think we'll have a lot of people thinking pretty conservatively going into 2023. Yeah, yeah. I mean... There's the sweeping scale of some of these layoffs speaks to a couple of things. I think it one, it speaks to how large some of these companies have grown 
that, you know, these are Twitter, you know, when it reduces its its headcount by 50%, which is a, a lot, you know, that's thousands, 3,700 jobs, I think is how many they're cutting. And yeah, Meta, as you mentioned, 11,000. We've been following Baidu's and, you know, they had done two layers of cuts and the, I think, I don't know if this is rumor or full fact, but the, the last thing I've read is... The 12,000. 12,000, yeah, 12,000 yeah. closing their... I think that's unconfirmed. Right, exactly. We also saw this week Indian EdTech Unicademy cut 10% of its jobs. We saw Brainly, which is a Polish, uh, you know, European EdTech darling tutoring company, basically let its Indian team go. So that's the Polish company leaving, making cuts, but it affects Indian workers. And, you know, earlier this year, we've seen, we saw to you major cuts. We've seen a few serious downsizings. And so you're seeing it sort of both in tech generally and in in a smaller way within ed tech. I like to take the glass half full perspective as well. I, you know, one thing jumped out to me this week. I thought it was it was so, I guess, inspiring slash odd, but it, I think a good thing. We're coming from the global head of talent acquisition at Duolingo, basically saying, <laughs> hey, is a, a LinkedIn post saying, you know, Easy assumption. If big tech is doing layoffs, Duolingo probably is too. But the truth is we aren't and won't be. We're financially stable and still hiring. Our business model is subscription-based and not ad-based. We have 50 roles open and we're going to post even more. And, you know, in some ways, this is a big thing that happens in the in the sort of California Silicon Valley ecosystem where it's a little bit of like humble bragging, like, you know, we're, we're so sorry for all the people leaving, but we're doing great. <laughs> so come join us. I was like, man, pride goeth before the fall. Yeah, a, little, a little bit. You know, not to branch too far afield, but we saw that the crypto industry uh-huh. had like the ultimate example of that happen this week, which, you know, I don't even know how much your listeners want to talk about crypto. Just the but Sam Bankman Freed. Yeah. Guy he, mm-hmm. this guy basically spent all summer as the white knight scooping up all the companies that were struggling and, you know, opened himself up to a bank run and was taken over himself just like yesterday. So I don't know. I <laughs> it Pride goeth before the fall just feels really apt for anyone saying, you know, we're fine right, right. now. It's a tough market. Yeah, it is a tough market. And there's something, <laughs> speaking of pride before the fall, I mean, there's something a little bit exciting about seeing companies like Meta and Snap and Chime and all these crypto companies that have been these sort of Stripe, you mentioned these huge darlings, you know, start to say, oh, wow, we maybe were a little, had a little bit of hubris during the pandemic and by keeping hiring and growing the way we were open door, reduced staff by a lot because home purchases are way down. Everybody's sort of suffering from the, from the chaos of, of the American economy. And then to see, you know, ed tech, you know, Duolingo, one of the big ed tech darlings say, we're actually doing okay, even in this world of really chaotic tech. There's something a little bit like vindicating. I don't know, I, because ed tech has been suffering all year, having a really, you know, major stock decreases. There's something a little bit, a little bit vindicating to see the rest of the tech world sort of, you know, see some of that same downturn rather than thinking it's an ed tech thing. But that's probably not the right take on this. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a scary time for, I think, a lot of people. And I hope my glass half full read is not only will people go into ed tech, but a lot of the engineers and designers and sort of really, you know, powerful and, and people with extremely high demand skill sets, 
you know, start companies. They take ideas right. and, and run with them. Yeah, they do something that that's closer to their to the legacy they want to leave in the world. And you know, some of that might be ed tech, some might be climate tech, some might be, you know, other types of charity work. I would love to see some of that incredible energy go towards positive ideas. Yeah, exactly right. And you know, I think for any listener who is in a position to hire people, instead of posting on LinkedIn that you're doing all right, I encourage you to reach out to the companies that are affected and say like, hey, you know, would love to interview some of the folks who you unfortunately had to lay off. Yeah, health tech still doing quite well, lots and lots of movement in that space. And I feel like, yeah, exactly. I think that's a good attitude, you know, rather than sort of a humble bragging, sort of showing how well your company is doing, really, really, really make it a, uh, a meaningful reach out that can catch some of these incredible people who have sort of come in from all over the country, all over the world to do you know, the most impactful, scalable tech work they can, and now are trying to figure out, oh, and actually in doubling down on that, you know, H-1B visas, there's some really interesting talk about, you know, a lot of these tech workers are on H-1B v skilled worker visas, which means that if they don't find another job in a relatively short time period, they can actually be forced to leave the country in the U.S. So that raises the stakes even more for people who have been here for years and have their families here. So definitely a good time to you know, be charitable, reach out, make sense of and get, you know, incredible talent. But let's be sensitive <laughs> from ed tech. It's not like we're, we're killing it entirely. I wish we were, but Duolingo maybe aside. So I want to talk about what I think is your favorite topic, something we tend to talk about every time you're on, which is the absolute circus that is Indian uh, ed tech. We mentioned Ute Academy. We've already mentioned a little bit of what's going on in Baiju's, but there's more news from Baiju's this week. And the name of this segment is Indian EdTech is Messy. Why is it called that? Well, it's important to say it's messy with an I, right. not with a Y. This story is actually pretty fun. You're going to have to bear with me a little bit because it ends up being sort of convoluted, but I'll, I'll do my best to make it simple. So Baiju's, the Indian EdTech company, signed, quote unquote, I don't even know what you would call it. He's He's Lionel Messi, the famous Argentine soccer player, he of the 430 million Instagram followers, that's a real number, which is frightening, to be an ambassador for their nonprofit. So it's not actually the core company, it's it's for the nonprofit, which is which is nice. And I think it's like buy juice for all to help, you know, bring more educational opportunities to kids around the globe. What's interesting about this deal is Baiju's lead investor is the Qatar Investment Authority, which is the sovereign wealth fund of Qatar, the the country in the Middle East. Qatar, the country in the Middle East, is hosting the World Cup starting November 21st in two weeks. So the preeminent soccer thing in the world. Baiju's, the edtech company, whose major investor is the Qatar Investment Authority, sovereign wealth fund of Qatar, the country where the World Cup is being held, happens to be a sponsor of the World Cup. That's true. You can draw the lines as you will. (laughs) Additionally, Qatar's, we'll call them leadership, Qatar the country, the leadership of the country, owns Paris Saint-Germain, which is the football club, they call it football in Europe, that the one and only Lionel Messi plays for. Hmm. (laughs) So again, you can draw the lines however you like, (laughs) but... There's an awful lot of connections between these three stakeholders. So my take is 
this is actually probably a pretty good deal for Baijus. They probably didn't have to pay cash that much for either the World Cup sponsorship or the ambassadorship of Messi. So from like a business, from a strictly business perspective, I think Baijus probably did pretty well mm-hmm. in all this. Mm-hmm. Better brand marketing than, than World Cup sponsorship around the world. It's pretty amazing. Right. Now, we I feel obligated to bring up the concept of what's called sports washing, which is trying to paper over any potential, let's call them wrongs for lack of a better descriptor, that a country may or may not have committed by buying a famous sports team, hosting a famous sports competition, et cetera, et cetera. Qatar, the country, has been accused of this. Again, like your listeners should do their own research. <laughs> I am not opine on the concept, but I feel obligated to introduce it and to say, again, from a business perspective, I think Baiju's did very well here. From a host of other perspectives, who knows? Man. <laughs> I mean, I have two reactions to that. One, I love the sort of JFK style uh, unveiling of, you know, back into the left and look at the, the Qatari sovereign funds actions. I love how you put together this whole web of, of complexity and business interests. And I'm sure that there is a there there somewhere in there. It's just fun to hear you think about it. It's one thing I love about the way you see this space. You see all the, the hidden connections. The other thing I would say about this particular situation is I think, you know, we've mentioned on the podcast how Baiju's is, we've called it sort of a a macrocosm of the ed tech world. Like it's a company that is so big and so sort of spectacular in its moves. Every, all the numbers are so big when it raises money. They're talking about a potential billion dollar IPO just for Akash, which is one of their subsidiaries that they bought. Like the numbers are so big. And when they make moves, it's things like this. They're going to bring in arguably the most famous athlete in the world as your spokesperson. And it, it makes me think of, of sort of we're used to the ed tech industry being sizable, but sort of humble in its its moves. It doesn't do things like the massive big tech companies or big oil or big pharma does. But some of the moves that Baijus is doing kind of reminds me of big Big Pharma, actually, it's a good connection to to FTX, the crypto exchange that we were just mentioning earlier, which also had sponsored a sports stadium before, you know, unceremoniously selling itself out of desperation. It's a crazy time. But yes, listeners can do their own research and, and find the connections. It's, you know, I, we don't want to talk about Baiju's every week on this podcast, but they're just always doing something so spectacular and newsworthy that we sort of can't ignore them, you know? You guys may have talked about this, but just quickly on the Akash thing, it's like a little bit stunning that they would choose that business to IPO right after the news that they had borrowed money from that business for the core business. So it's like, so are you IPOing the Akash business? Are you IPOing the Akash business so that you can prop up the core business? And like, it's so frustrating to have to ask that question, but like you simply have to ask it. And and that's like, I share your, I don't even know what to call it. The, <laughs> the, it's hard to cover Baiju's every week and you don't want to be negative on it, but like you have to ask the questions just because of the track record. Yeah. Yeah. One other sort of interesting theme of Indian ed tech this week is that 
several of the the major players we've seen this from Unicademy, from upgrad from vedantu and from Baijus itself including with, with akash which is in-person centers are doing what uh, the press there is calling an offline push meaning moving away from purely digital delivery and into hybrid or they call it fidgetal i've never heard that phrase before but fidgetal like p-h-y-g-i-t-a-l as meaning yeah that's a new one you know, models where there's some in-person learning. And that's partially because the Indian education system really did snap back to in-person much more than some others. So so I think that all of these ed tech companies that were really celebrating the move to digital during the pandemic are trying to figure out how to reach people. So, and and there's there's a question about, you know, you know, we saw Upgrad earmark $30 million for offline expansion. They're opening 10 campuses next year. So these are like four of the biggest, I think they may be the biggest Indian ed tech companies all making the same move at the same time. And whenever that happens, it means it's either there's a really good reason, it's a really good playbook, or they're all following each other and, you know, off a cliff. But I think we'll have to watch that and see if offline, you know, helps them retain their revenue and sort of, you know, keep them from having to do further layoffs. What are your thoughts about this offline expansion? Yeah, I think it's the right strategic move for the vast majority of them. In that market, it's mostly about earning the share of wallet, where you know parents, as a percentage of their total income, are willing to spend more than perhaps we are in the U.S., but it's going to be really dependent on, on what's available to them. And like you said, the Indian education system is already fairly privatized, and you know parents have lots of options. So again, strategically, it makes a lot of sense. I think what we haven't seen and frankly probably won't see until and unless one of these companies goes public is what that does to margins. You know, anytime you have a physical building that that changes the the structure of of your business and the margins that you can earn. So I think they do it out of necessity to to continue maintaining their or growing their share of wallet. But I would have to believe that it compresses their margins away from, you know, SaaS software style margins that they probably pitch their early investors to something that looks a lot more similar to the for-profit high schools and universities that we have here in the U.S. Yeah. I imagine that they're in their decks, they probably talk about, you know, hybrid a lot or how they're leveraging their, you know, the popularity of their apps to bring people into the centers. So there's less need for marketing or, you know, there's, there's all sorts of ways to sort of spin it. But I think you're, you're, you're right that they, it's, it's just a very different kind of business if you're doing tutoring centers or in-person campuses than being fully online and app-based. And it's all about, you know, content and and tech. So it's going to be interesting to watch. And and I, I think it also maybe has a limiting factor in how much these Indian ed tech companies become international players. I mean, you know, Baiju's has been trying to grow all over the world. That's part of the, at least the purported reasoning behind the World Cup sponsorship is they want to grow everywhere. But if they're spending a lot of their, you know, time and capital on building in-person centers in India, then that doesn't have much effect on international expansion. So, you know, going offline locally is doesn't have a direct line to being able to expand very rapidly internationally. You can still expand your, your in-person centers internationally, but it's just a very different proposition for all the reasons you said. It, you're suddenly caught up in having to own real estate and do or do or, you know rent things and rent property in different countries and much higher overhead. It's an interesting move. I mean, I think it's logical, but I also think, you know, as an ed tech advocate, it feels like sort of a step away from ed tech, a little bit more towards a sort of Kumon 
style, you know, type of learning than the sort of free-flowing video-based, app-based live tutoring over the phone that I think is is really the actual future of this field. But we'll see how. Well, I don't know. I mean, this is probably a longer conversation, but like, it frankly is probably more learner focused, right? Where Actually, you, yeah. and and I talked <laughs> about it in my in my newsletter this week of like, you can't just expect a kid to sit in front of a screen for eight hours and you know just kind of accumulate knowledge via the screen, right? There, There is a physical component to education and, you know, investors are going to have to figure out how to reconcile that. Like, are we okay investing in these hybrid businesses? Maybe not. Maybe it has to be a different type of investor and maybe it does segment and it truly isn't ed tech, but I know, I know these hybrid businesses have to exist whether they're ed tech, whether they're, you know, high margin <laughs> is is another question. Yeah. Or whether they could happen through partnerships with university campuses, of which there are many, many, many in India that are fighting for students. So, but yeah, it's very fair. And yes, yes, more, you know, dedicated learning time, more FaceTime can have very, very good effects on education and educational outcomes. Even so, that's not my personal love, borderless global nature of EdTech. But, you know, no question that there's more than a little room for in-person learning in the world. So it'd be a experiment, sort of a pandemic-fueled experiment in what physical learning, you know, can and should look like if you have three or four different huge companies all coming at the same time trying to compete with one another. They could do some really interesting things. So uh, it's always good to keep an eye on that. You know, so one more topic to talk about but it's really you know this is i don't know if there's sort of a true through line there there's a couple of articles that i think were so interesting that i do want to recommend them to our listeners and sort of we'll put them as links in the show notes there's two different articles in actually nature the the peer-reviewed you know science journal relevant to education and and ed tech one is about hierarchy and dynamics in U.S. faculty hiring and retention. This came out in September, but it's getting some coverage throughout the sort of popular media because it's about how 80% of the professors at universities really attended the same few colleges and how there's this enormous prestige hiring and sort of self-replicating move. And what that's doing is creating these huge generation of graduate students that are questioning whether there's any room for them in academia. So there's another Nature article called, I Don't Want This Kind of Life, Graduate Students Question Career Options. And basically graduate students talking about how they learned academic skills, but very few, you know, relevant business skills like management or budgeting or developing a business plan. And about half of them are uh, dissatisfied with the level of career guidance. So there's a little bit of this sort of ROI shakeup at the PhD level. And then that sort of feeds into some of the things we're seeing with, with coding boot camps. There was a great editorial from um, Aaron Rasmussen of Outlier and Masterclass about the Generation Z not being sure about the return on investment of a degree and they're thinking about alternatives. And of course they present themselves as, as a great alternative and they're offering associates degrees that are mostly online or I think entirely online. You're just seeing all of this sort of a frothiness. That's how I read it around the idea of is education worth the major investments is higher education worth the major investments. And I think it's starting to reach a, you know, continue to reach a fever pitch where all these different groups that are really very different from one another 
are questioning it at the same time. So I know there's not quite a true thesis there, but I'm curious what you think about it, Matt. What, what, do, what do you think about when you think about this sort of labor market education relationships? Yeah. So bear with me again here. I'm going to tell a story that circles back to it. So one of my favorite writers is a guy named Ben Thompson. He writes Stratechery, which is kind of like a strategic analysis of what's going on in big tech. And he writes, you know, three, four times a week. He's great. And he writes about, and it's all of his subscribers pay a hundred dollars a year, entirely B2C. He does not advertise his subscription numbers, but it's probably somewhere between five and 15,000 people pay a hundred dollars a year for his stuff. So he's doing quite well. And he has sway among the tech zeitgeist. And he talks about this problem that when he was growing, he was super responsive to feedback that he got on Twitter, because that was a channel that he used to help grow his following. It was kind of mutually reinforcing with his newsletter. And there came a point where he realized that the feedback that he was getting on Twitter came from mostly people with the same viewpoint. And they didn't Their feedback was important and relevant, but it wasn't necessarily reflective of his entire base of his audience. So he got to the point where he realized that, yeah, like I have to consider the opinions of these folks, but I also have to be cognizant and look for data specifically across my broader base to make sure that the feedback I'm getting is correct. And that's what I think about a lot with these discussions of like the end of the college degree and the ROI of education and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, where a lot of really smart people think this is happening, that there's there's something where we as a society are questioning the value of a college degree. And, you know, I think they have a lot of really good arguments for that. And frankly, good data too. It's not like they're pulling it out of their behinds. But like, if I walked into, you know, a Gap store in Columbus, Ohio, and Columbus, Ohio, I pick specifically because it is the demographics of Columbus are uniquely reflective of the broader U.S. They almost perfectly mirror the broader U.S., which is why it's kind of the retail capital of the world, because if you can sell stuff in Columbus, you can sell it anywhere, at least as I understand it. So if you walk up to somebody in a gap in Columbus, Ohio, like, what do they think? They're 17 years old. My guess is they're still, you know, applying to college. And so that's why I really struggle with this of like, is it a trend? Is it an emergent trend? Is it the start of a trend? Like, where are we on that line? I have no idea. Like, I know these smart people think it's coming to happen, but I don't know where on the trend line we are. That's a really fascinating take. I like that thought process. And it's interesting because I think maybe one of the reasons that it may not be representative, as you say, you know, the 17-year-olds, the high school age students who are this traditional demographic that would be thinking about, you know, how to optimize their education, don't get exposed to that much. I mean, there was we, we covered an article last week, a really cool, really interesting article from Heckinger Report about a 17-year-old who went to Western Governors because his father had just done that and then got this yeah, yeah. incredible. And it's like, well, yeah, if you see your a parent do that, then, you know, then you're exposed, but outside of it, you're not often exposed. But it brings me to like, you know, and I think the place where a lot of people are seeing this kind of alternative education is actually, ironically, at work. 
they're seeing it on the dub and they're seeing yeah. and in, from their employment there was a real an interesting survey from emeritus uh, online edtech company emeritus this week about all of the results of the sort of upskilling classes that they offer and they said you know 94% of people saw a positive career and 61% found new meaning and inspiration in their lives. 20% salary increase, you know, more engaged at work. Now, 89% said they're more engaged at work. So they're basically saying, hey, when you give people who are already working really great educational experiences that don't force them to go back and get a master's or don't force them into a full traditional education with debt, they get all sorts of benefits from it. And then, you know, I think that kind of thing does spread among workers, but I don't think it spreads around high school kids. There's definitely a huge gap between what high school age students are aware of and what is out there. <laughs> I love that point. And as much as I admire the Emeritus team, and I think they've done a lot of good, they focus on the cream of the crop. They focus on the sea level. They focus on the high potential young leaders. Like they're not... And this is where Guild, of course, has to enter the conversation because they're really working with the meat and potatoes of America's workforce, right? And like they're doing good work on that. They cover, I think the number is like three or four million employees, which is a lot. And maybe the stats are similar at Guild as they are at Emeritus. I don't know. It's just so hard to tell. And, you know, I think the same principle applies for the people who are going to jump on me for calling out a 17-year-old. I think it still applies for a 30-year-old who's trying to figure out what's next. Maybe. It's just so hard to figure out where we are in the cycle. It, it is. I would posit that there are more ways to learn about alternative education if you're a 30 than you're 17 right now. But that doesn't mean that the you know, you're actually doing they're it. actually doing it or that, that that it's really hit the public consciousness i mean longtime listeners of the podcast know that i'm very bullish on the sort of grow with google the google it search and the google search and part of the reason i am is that that is a program that is comes from you know one of the very best known companies in the world that's sort of super aspirational but also is designed to be visible they, they, they actually advertise against it at one point it was put on the home screen of google like the Google search screen, they actually had a note at the bottom saying, hey, we have these certificates, which is like unreal. That's the, you know, the most viewed billboard there is. And I think that kind of marketing is required. And you can have, you know, your amazing Southern New Hampshire's, but you need, they spend a lot on marketing too. And places like don't yet. I don't think you're, you know, your average 17 year old knows that you can go take an MIT exec ed course instead of going to college or, you know, or, or, or even consider that, that option. There's a visibility issue. And, but I think you're right at heart, you know, nobody knows how all of us at tech insiders, all of us who talk about this and, and watch these headlines every week, it's hard to know how, how much these options are understood. Even boot camps, which have been around for many years, I think a lot of people don't know they exist <laughs> even now. And that was the point I was trying to make with the Ben Thompson story is, you know, you and I talk about this all the time. We've, we've talked about it on this podcast before, and that almost makes me wary to, to conclude like, well, Alex and Matt know this right. <laughs> to be true, <laughs> right? It's like, well, you think about it. It makes logical sense. It does. And, and I want to be super clear that it makes logical sense that this would be a change that's happening as more information is available to prospective students. I am somewhat reserved in my judgment, almost because it's such a zeitgeisty topic. Yeah. No, I think that's well-founded skepticism. So to close up this week, we are going to go to you, 
because you are so good at collecting all of the amazing funding and mergers and acquisitions that happen in EdTech each week in your EdTech Thoughts newsletter. So take it away. Tell us a little bit about what happened with funding rounds and mergers the week of November 9th. Awesome. So the first is Classera, which is a San Francisco-based company that actually does most of its business in the Middle East, North Africa region, MENA. They raised $40 million to continue growing out their platform, both on the product side and on the go-to-market side. It sounds like they are interested in doing more in the corporate learning space and in the Asia-Pacific region. The next is Florio, which does VR-related therapy treatments for neurodiverse children. The founder himself does not is not autistic, or at least is not known to be autistic, but that was the initial focus of the company. And they developed a doctor-approved therapy treatment. And so now this round will go towards the continued kind of study of the treatment, kind of like drug development, but not quite. This is that kind of fun middle ground of things that are kind of therapies like a drug would work, but not actually kind of playing with your body chemistry. Pixera raised 5.7 million. They are a virtual reality experience building company. So they they build simulations for companies to train specific skill sets on the job. They have a cool stat where they improve worker confidence in in their skill sets by 275%. I had Odyssey this week because I was out last week. It sounds like you guys talked to Joe. They raised $4.75 million to help grow their education savings account facilitation business, working with states like Idaho and Arizona to deploy ISAs across those populations. Emerge Career, which is a training company for incarcerated folks. They help those who are incarcerated get commercial driver's licenses, nursing assistant certificates, and welding certificates while they're still incarcerated and then get a job once they're released. They raise $3.2 million. A company called Edcasa, based in Pakistan, in Lahore, raised $320,000. They're kind of cool because they are working with TikTok to provide a, a social educational experience. I think that's a trend that'll be kind of emergent next year, is, is hearing the word social a lot more in, in EdTech products. Mm-hmm. And then to round us out, iSims, the famous, or not famous, but <laughs> well-known HRIS HR information system acquired skill survey, which helps companies evaluate the skills of prospective employees. And Times Higher Education bought, which is a, a, a UK-based education media company, bought Data HE, which is a UK-based data analysis company that helps schools recruit students. So any of those particularly interesting to you, Alex? Well, so over the last two weeks, we talked to Joe Connor from Odyssey and to Mohammed. Almadani from Classera, because that is they're working in emerging markets. The through line that I like hearing in that is there's this desire and money going into expanding the market, right? So I mean, Mina, you know, Classera has offices in four different Middle Eastern countries as well as San Francisco, and they're trying to go into Asia and into Africa and really bring edtech to people who don't have as much access to it as they should. Hearing about Emerge, bringing education opportunities to the incarcerated, you know, high demand skill sets to incarcerated populations. We've seen ADPS in that space in the past, but it's really, or APDS, is that right? APDS. APDS, you know, a, a few others play in that space, but 
I am always very excited and, and bullish when there are companies that are truly trying to sort of expand the pie and reach people who would not see educational technology as a possibility. So those are ones that stand out to me. How about, how about you, Matt? Any, any that make uh, that sort of make your brain go? Yeah. Well, first of all, I agree. You know, there is something almost heartwarming when you talk about accessing markets that really don't have a ton of educational opportunity today. Those are the like kind of nice reminders of like, oh yeah, I like working in this industry. Right. There's just something generally good. The, the vibes are good on, on, on that front. And then, you know, I, I have this kind of growing interest in companies like Florio that mm. I don't even know how to explain it super well, but they sit kind of, they're not, they're not a, a drug as we kind of think of drugs, right? Like you don't take a pill, you're, you're in VR, but there are ways to measure the efficacy and potentially, you know, in Florio's case, help serve, I think neurodiverse is the general world word. I'm going to say autistic because it's, you can kind of visualize it maybe a little bit more concretely. Kids operate in the world. And, and I, I just think that's like such a cool premise, but also so hard to do effectively. Right. And, and that's, you know, I think the, the age old, problem in ed tech has been, you know, are you actually efficacious or are you, you know, just spending a lot of marketing? Right. And I love that Florio specifically is, is taking the, we're going to do this basically as if we're developing a drug, that level of rigor is great. It's not for everybody. It's really hard. It's really expensive, but I'm hoping by setting a pathway, we'll see more companies doing. It. Yeah. It's a great point. They're trying to behavioral therapy. They're trying to actually be sort of qualified, certified as behavioral therapy and going yeah. to hospitals. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing. Awesome. So we've covered a lot of ground from politics to Andreessen to big tech layoffs, Indian ed tech, and cannot head away from Baiju's for one week. And some of the, just the, the, the buzz around the ROI of education and sort of alternatives. And, you know, I think you made great points about it. That's all we have for you this week on this week in ed tech from ed tech insiders. Next week, we're continuing to be a lot of things happening. And we have a couple of really great interviews next week with the the Deputy General Counsel of Amplify Learning, Evan Harris, and the founder of Patent Hacks, Trevor Skeen, to talk about IP and the law in ed tech, which is a fascinating and deep topic. Thanks to my co-host here, Matt Towers. Always great to talk to you, Matt. Thanks for having me, Alex. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of EdTech Insiders. If you like the podcast, remember to rate it and share it with others in the EdTech community. For those who want even more EdTech Insider, subscribe to the free EdTech Insiders newsletter on Substack.